Let us take our Bibles and begin this morning with a New Testament reading, and then we will continue in Genesis by reading chapters 15, 1 through 7. But turn with me first to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, followed by Genesis 15, 1 through 7. Beloved, let us ask the Lord for help before we hear the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come again together before you through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are so full of patience and forbearance with us, your children. We thank you that you are slow to anger and that you are rich in grace and goodness. By the merits of your son, Lord, now we ask that you would give us much more than we have prepared for. Oh, Father, we pray that you would even give us more than we ask for. Lord, we ask that it would please you to stoop to our neediness and help us understand your word as it's read and preached today. Help us to believe your word as it is read and preached today. Help us to indeed, Lord, be transformed by your word as it is read and preached today. Bring reformation into each of our lives. Give us each the grace necessary to to take responsibility for what we have heard today. O oh Lord, may it issue in fruitfulness to your praise. O oh Lord, attend to our neediness. And Lord, if it pleases you, even today, bring new life to those outside of Christ, those who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins. If it pleases you, Lord, today, convert them. Today, let new life begin in them. Bring them the new birth according to your purpose, according to your goodness. We know how right it is to ask for this, for it is a testimony to your greatness in mercy. Oh, Lord, we ask that it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. 
and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. Please turn to Genesis chapter 15. Verses 1 through 7. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God's word. One of the most significant men who has ever been introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ is a man introduced to us by our Lord Jesus himself. And we just learned about this man in Luke chapter 7. He was a Gentile, which means he was not Jewish. He was not circumcised. He did not belong to the nation of Israel. He was also a military man, a soldier, a Roman centurion. He was also a God-fearing man. Though he belonged to the enemy army that occupied and ruled over Israel at that time, the centurion personally built a beautiful synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum by the sea. They loved him for it. So when the day came that he begged his Jewish friends to do him a favor, they gladly did it. The centurion asked if they would go find Jesus and beg Jesus to heal his very, very sick servant, the servant he loved and valued above all others. Well, they found Jesus, and he agreed to come to the centurion's house, but while he was still on his way, the centurion sent more friends with a new message for our Lord. This was the message, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority. What did you just hear? The centurion not only confessed his own unworthiness to Christ, he also confessed our Lord's ability to heal from any distance with a word. 
His confession was that Jesus has all the grace and all the power and all the authority to rule over and against every earthly power in order to freely reward a lowly, undeserving sinner. That's what the centurion confessed. Luke 7, 9 tells us Jesus marveled at this man. Marveled. He then turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is how an unknown Gentile got introduced to the church as one of the most significant men we have ever met. He is the man who made Jesus marvel. And over what? His faith. He had faith greater than anyone whom Jesus had met among the Jews of Israel. Beloved, the one who pleases the Lord more than anyone else is the one who has faith. The Jews were all known for boasting in their flesh. They boasted about being circumcised. They boasted about being the people to whom God gave the law. They boasted that they had the patriarchs. They had the priesthood. They had the covenants. They had the temple. They boasted in their antiquity, and they boasted in their ethnicity. But it must have stung them in no little way to hear Jesus boast in a Gentile man's faith. And not just any Gentile, but a Roman occupier who thought much less of himself than most Jews would ever dare to think of themselves. The most impressive man or woman on the earth is not the one who does great religious works, It is not the one who does great domestic works. It is not the one who does great cultural works. It is not the one who is praised by the most friends and neighbors and peers and employers. It is not the one who is most well-adjusted psychologically and emotionally to the social standards of the age in which we live. No, no, the most impressive person on the earth is the one who has faith in the God of promise. That one marvels the Son of God. Even though faith is a work of God in the soul of man, a gift from him, even so the Lord still says when he sees it, look at that, look at that man, look at that woman, look at that boy, look at that girl, look There goes someone with faith in me. Nothing about a person is more impressive than their faith. I have learned that this is why many Christians don't like other Christians. Because they want to be impressed by their social skills. They want to be impressed by their clothing, by their vocation, by the way they run this part of their life or that part, and when, they, when they're not impressed, they move on. Because many Christians are not marveling at the faith of their brothers and sisters. 
Jesus marvels at faith. Nothing about a person is more impressive than their faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Which brings us again to Abraham. In scripture, he is called the man of faith, Galatians 3.9. He is called the father of all who believe, Romans 4.11. And we, his spiritual descendants, are called to walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had, Romans 4.12. Abraham is the archetype the prototype for all who will ever come to God by faith. Now, this does not mean he is the first man to ever have faith. He is not. But it does mean he is the first man whose faith is fully defined and fully expressed and fully celebrated in the word of God. And why does Abraham's faith and not somebody else's faith get all of this attention? Because Abraham's faith is foundational for his descendants. His descendants in the flesh are the Jews. Why? Because Abram was the first Jew. He was the first man to be circumcised by God's command. But Abram had his faith before he had his circumcision. This is so crucial. So crucial that Paul writes a whole chapter about it in Romans, chapter 4. Abram's circumcision came later. He had his faith first. His circumcision is recorded in Genesis 17. His faith is recorded before you in Genesis 15. Which means his faith came while he was still a Gentile. His faith is recognized and honored by God before he ever became a Jew and ever became the father of all the Jews. This is what God wanted the world to see. It's what he wanted the Jews to see from the very start. The true foundation of life with God is faith. Nothing else can be built until that cornerstone is laid. Faith, not circumcision. Faith, not works of the law. Faith, not any other fixtures of the Jewish religion. It is faith alone that pleases God and makes spiritual descendants of Abraham. All those other things have their good and proper place, but they do not have the place which God assigns to faith. Love does not even have this place. Faith has first place with God. And to make sure his elect church does not miss this, the Lord puts Abram's faith on a pedestal. And the prophets and apostles of God do the same thing down through the ages. They imitate God and put Abram's faith on a pedestal. They will not boast in Abram's works, but in Abram's faith. Paul does it in Romans 4. 
He does it in Galatians 3. The author of Hebrews does it in Hebrews 11. James does it in James 2. Those are just a few places. The man of faith's faith is showcased to the church of God. Now, as I said earlier, faith is God's work in the soul of man. But to give birth to faith in a man, in a woman, in a child, God ordinarily uses means. Scripture says in Romans 10:14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Preaching is a means by which God ordinarily works faith in the soul of a man. When God is determined to do that work, he ordinarily uses preaching. Not exclusively, but ordinarily. And the preaching he ordinarily uses is the preaching of good news you just heard. And the good news that is preached is God's promise to use his power and his authority to deliver undeserving sinners from the curse that has fallen upon the whole world. They won't be able to do it. He is able to do it. Now what does this kind of faith-birthing preaching sound like? Well, we have heard it already in our reading this morning from Genesis 15. God is the preacher. God is the first preacher of good news. Christ says in verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Beloved, that is gospel preaching right there. That is beautiful and bold gospel preaching that will either convert or not, depending on the will of God. But it is sufficient for converting. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, before his own eyes, Abram had reason to fear. He had just been in a series of battles. If you were here last Sunday... If you have read chapter 14, he had just been in a series of battles with several enemies, the, the four kings from the east, Ketelamar, Tidal, Amraphel, and Arioch. And when you defeat the kings who have been defeating everyone else, that makes you the new biggest threat, the new biggest target. Before his own eyes, Abram had reason to fear. He was also living in a land that he did not yet possess. He was surrounded by those who were there before him, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and others. And the resources of that land were not unlimited. Everyone wanted to survive. So in the visible world, Abram had reason to fear. But in the word... In the divine word that came from God, Abram had no reason to fear. In the word that came from God, there was no threat. There was only promise. Which means in the invisible world, from where God speaks, 
in the invisible world from where God promises, in the invisible world where God rules over all that is visible, in the invisible world which has dominion over over the visible world, Abram has nothing to fear there in the invisible world. He has a friend there. He has a suzerain there. For in the place where there is a power above all earthly powers, in that place, Abram is loved. His name is known. The God of heaven has given himself to be, the text says, Abram's shield and Abram's reward. It is this kind of promise that gives birth to faith. Beloved, let me tell you what does not give birth to faith. Preaching bad news does not give birth to faith. Pulpiteers who rise to tell their congregations how wicked the wicked are, and that's all they hear Sunday after Sunday, hour after hour, how wicked the wicked are, that does not give birth to faith. There's no good news in it. Moralistic preaching does not give birth to faith. Pulpiteers who rise and tell people, be better, try harder, change your marriage, change your parenting, change this, change that. Here's five tips. It's law, law, law. It's not good news. Because under that kind of preaching, people will only discover how unable, no, how disabled they are to do that which has been commanded of them. The preaching that gives birth to faith is the preaching you hear in verse 1. Promises, good news, where the goodness and kindness and mercy and love of God is declared to his people that he is going to deliver them from evil and bring them into glory. No matter what happens, it shall be done for them. No matter how weak they are in the world or how strong the world is before them, God will do it for them. And it melts their heart. It regenerates their heart. If it is the purpose of God to let them hear. Now we need to understand, I think, why verse 1 is good news. Why verse 1 is a promise of salvation. Why verse 1 is gospel preaching. When God promises to be Abram's shield, he is promising to defeat all Abram's enemies. Satanic forces that want Abram to serve them and not Yahweh, the Lord, these are the forces that will be defeated by the shield of Abram. Yahweh is the shield of Abram. A shield is a tool of war. God is promising Abram's deliverance from all his enemies. I will not only keep you from being swallowed up by your enemies, Abram, I will defeat your enemies before you. This is what God is promising. God from heaven will engage in a conquest, a conquest that will deliver once and for all Abram and his spiritual descendants from the powers of and principalities of evil. 
And this will be evident in the lives of his descendants in that they do not serve and worship the creature. That they do not serve and worship the men of earth. They serve and worship the living God. It is a testimony that their enemies have been defeated before them and they are liberated to worship the one true and living God, Jesus Christ and his father. So this is what God is promising. A conquest on behalf of Abram and his spiritual offspring. Now ultimately this is a promise, beloved, to crush the serpent's head. And we heard of this promise already in Genesis 3, verse 15, that the offspring of a woman would come forth and crush the serpent's head. So this promise in verse 1 of 15 is a promise to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And we should remember, it is Satan who is called the ruler of this world. Jesus says this three different times, just in John's gospel. He is the ruler of this world the ruler of this world, the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Scripture also says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. The Lord God knows what he's promising when he says, Abram, I will be your shield. He's saying, Abram, I will deliver you and your spiritual offspring from enslavement to the God of this world. Because I have turned this race of men over to the devil as a due just punishment for their sin, but I am coming to take you out from his enslavement and put you behind my shield and keep you to the very end for my glory. The full and final liberation of the world from the curse that has been placed on it due to sin, that liberation will come freely by God's promise through God's power to Abraham and all his offspring, his spiritual offspring. The powers of darkness will fail not by our works, not by our excellent law-keeping, but by God's promise. And this promise, of course, has been fulfilled in the most glorious way, and we already can taste the consummation of it. It has been fulfilled in the, in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abram, the seed of Abram. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did those works need to be destroyed? So that the elect church would be brought out and protected behind the shield of Yahweh and brought safely to their heavenly rest. Now, this shield work is hinted at throughout chapter 15. You see it hinted at first in verse 7, which we read. The Lord had to go and bring Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. The Lord was serving Abram as his shield before he announced to Abram that he is a shield. When Abram lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans, he was being devoured by the enemies of his soul because he was a pagan idolater. He was enslaved to false gods. 
He was enslaved to the covetousness of the world. He was enslaved to the vain imaginations and darkened understanding of the Gentiles. He was an enemy of God himself in the possession of the enemies of God. He was a slave to the world system of godlessness. But his divine shield came and got him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. In love, God had predestined Abram for adoption. So instead of being defeated as an enemy, Abram is delivered and taken as a friend and an heir of God, made an adopted son of grace. Now later in this same chapter, God's shield work is hinted at in verse 14, when the Lord alludes to future slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's the shield of Yahweh. 400 years from chapter 15, well, actually even more years if you think about the patriarchs, but centuries later, the shield will come and gather Abram's spiritual offspring out. And then God's shield work is explicit, isn't it, in verse 18 through 21, when he lists the several nations who will be removed from the promised land. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The shield will come and remove them from the typical promised land, which is a foreshadowing of the heavenly country, because the Lord will have no evil in heaven. Beloved, you can see in verse 18 through 21 and in verse 14 that when the shield works for his people, it is not this raw aggression that sociologists talk about when they do the history of nations. It is justice. It is the Lord bringing justice upon those who have held his people captive, justice upon those who have done wickedly against the Lord. And this is why the text says that the Amorites' sins had not yet reached its fullness. The Lord, who is our shield, only acts justly, except when he acts in mercy for his elect. But let us move on to the other part of the Lord's preaching in verse 1. Christ does not just promise to be your shield. Christ promises to give you a great reward. To understand this reward in verse 1, we, for, we should first compare it to the reward that Abram turned down at the end of chapter 14 after his victory over Ketelamar. The king of Sodom, if you recall, had tried to draw Abram into a binding relationship where Abram would be rewarded by the king of Sodom with a portion of earthly treasure. Abram said no. He knew what was happening. He knew that the king of Sodom was trying to bind him into a vassal suzerain union where Abram would now have the king of Sodom and Sodom as his benefactor. The Lord now, on the heels of that very event, brings up the language of reward in his gospel preaching in verse 1. And he tells Abram, I will be your reward. Your reward shall be very great. Well, what is this reward? 
Well, beloved, it is the same reward that was once in the hands of Abram's enemies. What is that? It is the whole world. It shall be taken from the God of this present age. It shall be taken from the ruler of this world and all of his minions and servants. And it shall be given to Christ, the offspring of Abram, and all in union with him. And beloved, this is already being done and already has begun. Because that is why we have a great commission in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and make disciples of Americans. Oh, hold on a second. I think I said that wrong. No, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. There's not a single square inch of this earth that is now not in some wonderful, eternal way, the possession of the church of Jesus Christ through the ministry of Jesus Christ, who says right before that great commission commandment, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Jesus Christ is the Lord in human flesh of this world. For the first time since the fall, we now have our own man in our own nature, seated on the throne over this material world as ruler. Of course, God always was the Lord of the earth, but we never had one of our own men. Now we do in the divine son, in our own flesh. What is the great reward? Second Peter 3 describes it beautifully, even briefly. Quote, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not a new heaven and a new earth where we all have beachfront property and get to do whatever we want to do, but a new heaven, a new earth, a true material world, a new creation, Creation was never a bad idea. It was God's idea. He does not abhor the virgin's womb. He does not abhor the material world. He is actually redeeming it, renewing it, and giving it (coughs) to his church through his son. Where righteousness shall dwell to the praise of the king of righteousness. And this is why The Apostle Paul in Romans 4.13 rephrases and updates the language on the reward that is coming to Abram and his spiritual offspring. Listen to it. Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world (coughs) did not come, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith that he would be the heir of the world. This is the reward of Genesis 15.1, that the curse would be broken, that the curse would be defeated, that man's sin debt would be satisfied in the elect so they could be taken out 
of this cursed world and carried and brought in union with Christ into the glorious new heavens and new earth. This is the reward that is promised. And this is why we read this in Genesis 22, verse 17. The Lord again speaking to Abram about this. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. (coughs) And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That which the enemies once held in possession to use against Christ, against the Lord's anointed, is taken from them through Christ's suffering on the cross for the sins of his people and given to his church. Beloved, what we have in verse 1 is wonderful, glorious gospel preaching. And it is this good news, a free offer to Abram, that he believes and it is counted to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not preaching verse 6 this morning, but I am telling you about the kind of preaching, the kind of promising that births faith. And so I have an application to make to all of us. (coughs) One application is to drink water regularly. But the main application, beloved, is this. The greatest heirloom any of the spiritual descendants of Abram possess is their great-great-grandfather Abram's faith. Not his carpets, not his livestock, not his earthly land, not even the cave that he purchased to bury his wife, not his tents, the great heirloom that has been given and passed down to the spiritual descendants of Abram is his faith in the promise-making, promise-preaching Savior God who promises to defeat our enemies and has done it on the cross and he's already beginning to let us see its consummation. Thank you. The greatest heirloom that a family can give to their children is their faith in the promise-preaching God. Now, let me, let me really make this clear, beloved. You are not giving your children, your siblings, anyone in your family, you are not giving them an heirloom worth keeping. If all you are talking about, when you talk about yourself or even your religious life, even your Christian life, if all you talk about is what you are doing, for God. If you are talking about your works, if you are telling people how 
you are buffeting your body and how you are fasting and how you are doing this and doing that. If your children are growing up in a Christian home and all they hear about is what the works of the Christian are, you are not even uncovering the greatest family heirloom. The greatest family heirloom is being uncovered when the language at home is this. God is my shield. God has rewarded me. I am not afraid of what's happening in Washington, D.C. I'm not afraid to open my property tax envelope. I'm not afraid of what's happening in the elections of 2024. I'm not afraid of what's happening around the world. I'm not silent in my prayers for these things, but I am not afraid because the Lord God, the Lord God said, fear not, I am your shield. You shall have a great reward. And then he sent Jesus. And I have seen the downfall. I have seen the downfall of the God of this world. I have seen the works of the devil destroyed in Jesus Christ. And I have seen the beginning in his resurrection of the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. There's already one of our own. There's already a man of our own nature. We have already put on the throne there one of our own race who loves us and has power above all earthly powers for us. He's already there. How could we not end up there with him? We certainly shall be. He has forgiven our sins. Beloved, this is sharing. This is showing. This is giving the family heirloom. Be careful about the proportion of your speech. Be careful about what you boast in. Be careful about what you demand. It is only promise preaching, gospel preaching, good news preaching that gives birth to faith and sustains that same faith that it has birthed. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your sermon in verse 1 of Genesis 15. We thank you for the importance that we already are beginning to see in verse 6 of faith and Abram's faith. Oh, gracious Lord, I pray that you would forgive us all when in our self-righteousness we have been more instinctual to talk about our own works or the shortcomings of works in others than we have to talk about the work of God on our behalf. We confess, O oh Lord, that our best works have done nothing, zero, to open the new creation, to secure the new creation. Jesus Christ alone has opened it. He alone has secured it. He alone has destroyed the works of the devil. He alone is giving to us the new heavens and the new earth. And even that has not yet fully been revealed, but he has. He in our nature is at your right hand, O oh, gracious God.
And we thank you for the testimony that his enthronement is. That you are true to your word. And this is the very seed of faith. Oh Lord, help us to trust what you have said and to distrust all that we see. Help us see what faith sees. The enthroned Christ who knows us by name and has given us the world to come. A world of righteousness and praise to his glory. Help us pass this heirloom on. In Jesus' name, amen.